0: What do you think the uh, the Adjahelm uh, commercials are going to be like?
1: Do you lose your keys more than three times a week? Have <laughs> you gone to the grocery store and forgotten why you're there?
0: Might
2: you at some point age?
0: <laughs> will, are you now or will are you, you ever
2: be aging? <laughs> or have you ever been a human being? Warning. Uh, Adjahelm not, not approved for human beings.
1: Right. <laughs> it's him. necessary Warning. for our stock.
2: <laughs> Warning. We don't actually know what the fuck's
0: going on with this drug. <laughs> don't contact, contact your doctor. Make sure you get it. We don't know what's going on with this drug, but you have to get it. You absolutely need to get it right now. Tell your children that they have to get it for you. Tell your children they have to call your doctor's office five times and make sure they get it for you. We are not sure if it's effective. Works for nobody. Uh, Not really sure what's going on. The death panel
2: does not constitute medical advice.
0: Yes.
1: Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to our weekly Monday patron exclusive bonus episode, become a Patreon supporter at www.patreon.com slash pod. So actually, this week's patron episode was fantastic. We talked about a viral New York Times op-ed that suggested that people purge their friendscape of depressed Mm. and overweight friends in order to live the most perfect life. Which I just
0: did right afterwards, which was very helpful.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this article claimed that stigmatized traits and behaviors could catch on like a viral social contagion. So we trace the history of this idea that you are the sum of the five people you spend the most time with and explain how this fucking awful research traces all the way back through pop psychology, the formal academic structure to the sort of pre World War II formal eugenics movement. It's it's a great episode. So check it out. Mm -hmm. All right. So with plugs out of the way, Today, we're going to visit in on some recent developments going on both in the regulatory space for pharmaceutical drugs, but also what's going on with drug pricing reforms. We we sort of joke about this a lot, but we haven't really taken the time to break down why a lot of these policy proposals for drug pricing reform are not the amazing boon to the <laughs> like the movement for health justice that they are made out to be tragically
2: by, deeply
0: unserious yeah yeah and and there's a lot of speculation that and i think probably maybe wrong speculation that like covid and this new approval uh by the fda with this like unprecedented uh approval of a drug that is both really expensive and not clinically effective clearly is that's going to be like the straw that breaks the camel's back on drug pricing but as we're going to see like that is that's like some 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 wish fulfillment and it, the the story with this this approval is actually sort of on its own terms pretty striking and kind of horrifying about what like drug regulation is now potentially going to look like in the in the new in the new world, I guess.
1: So yeah, we're, t- we're talking about a controversial approval that the FDA granted this week for a new, F- for a new Alzheimer's drug from yeah. Biogen. So the drug is called Aduhelm. Uh, the brand name is Aduhelm. The drug itself is called Aducanumab. So for starters, this approval is highly unusual. First off, the data are a mess. The details of why this approval went through is incredibly murky. Many doctors are highly against the approval and it's unclear if the drug... Works at all. At the time of this recording, two members of the original advisory committee to the FDA have resigned over the approval, and the FDA pretty unusually went against their initial 11 to 1 decision against approving Aduhelm. But, you know, one of the main things that's abundantly clear about this story, maybe the only thing that's clear in the situation is that this approval is a huge, huge financial boost to Biogen's business. Yeah. Stocks are up not just for Biogen, but for the other two companies that are themselves working on <laughs> Alzheimer's drugs that are earlier on in the pipeline, which is our, our good friends, Eli Lilly and Roche.
0: Yes. Well, and as we're going to get into, right, if this is any sort of precedent for the way that FDA approval is going to work now. It's like, I can now, like, I. It, what is preventing me from saying like, you know, I've got this like cranberry juice that's like really good. It's got these like bioflavonoids in it.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the real reasons why this is being approved is to preserve the capacity for innovation in the pharma sphere, right? This is really mostly, I think, being discussed from certain regulators as being about sort of a protective measure for the development of innovative drugs, that if the FDA doesn't give concessions like this, that we will not uh, cure cancer or whatever. And, And this is like a myth that we talk about all the time on the show. But I think, you know, with the situation of this alzheimer's drug it's in, it's incredibly um complicated and and a lot of the reporting on this has been really unhelpful it's been collapsing the issue in a way that is very confusing and i think just to start off it would be really good to get through let's walk through the context of this approval and what this is and what this drug is supposed to do right
2: and especially and, how yeah. it was approved which and is kind right, of the key right right
1: which is the which is the key point here which is how it was approved and sort of what even is the approval
2: right and i think This is important to do uh, in part because part of what you're saying be the way that this is. So, for example, even the stuff that we've set up already, Okay, Biogen, a company which, you know, otherwise does not have a lot of other drug products in the pipeline. It's current drugs that it makes money off of primarily are either, you know, passing out of patent protections or they've been around for a while, have generic competition um etc things like that so biogen itself is you know kind of on the ropes as a company mm-hmm. and needs something like this it's and so then portfolio
1: you portfolio is is yeah. wanting right one now one big exactly. score
2: like right. in yeah. any crime movie it's like yeah. they need that one big score <laughs> exactly and so when you see something when you see something like that and then one of the things that this does is play into sort of existing biases or that gives confirmation bias to Let's say people who may think like, oh, the like all pharmaceuticals are like hokum or something or all pharmaceuticals are just some like, you know, drug companies making, uh, products that are, you know, quote, unquote, bad for you or whatever, or don't actually do anything or or useless. Right. right? And then just making money off of them, which is, you know, popular thing that gets repeated a lot in like anti-vaxxer communities or in your
1: autoimmune disease with celery juice communities. Yeah,
2: exactly. Um, Yeah. And so unfortunately, it's it's the kind of thing that, you know, when I see something like this, not only is it questionable what exactly is going on here it also is frustrating because it's like okay great this just plays into right
1: so yeah this is a you know biogen's new blockbuster which might be too good to be true um was approved formally on june 6th um so it was in the it, this drug was initially in the final approval process stages in 2019 when it was suddenly and very abruptly the trial was shuttered and closed, um, mm-hmm. with the FDA saying that there was not sufficient evidence that it actually did anything. There had actually been two studies. The first study showed minimal um, to potential benefit, and the second study, which was at both, these were both phase three trials, showed no improvement and so basically the assumption was at this point i think it was like november 2019 the assumption was this was not gonna go anywhere and that this was sort of the end of the line for this this drug um but what happened was biogen reconfigured their trial and they started testing a higher dose and the fda decided that they would allow the drug to return to consideration for approval with a higher dose under a very very specific criteria
2: the uh, accelerated approval category right
1: yeah the so the the accelerated approval program actually um, and we'll get into this in a little bit it actually sort of comes out of the work of act UP. not sort of it comes out of the work of act up around and specifically
2: a, <laughs> the treatment and action group right. right
1: so under the accelerated approval program approval is contingent, not necessarily on confirming efficacy and safety, which is what a normal study um, with FDA approval would look for, right? Does the drug work? Who does it work on? How should it be prescribed? What's the right dose, et cetera? Well, and
2: specifically, I think translated into English, like, does the drug treat what it is made for, right? Or what like, it says not it, just, it treats, yeah. Because, you know, you can just say efficacy, but I think it's important to say, because, you know, so, so often I think this uh, this language gets sort of like denaturalized or something as like simply drug efficacy, which could mean a whole bunch of different things really. But I, but I think colloquially what you're talking about really is like, does the drug do anything, anything for the specific drug? disease that it's disease or whatever. Right. Because it, it, it really all depends for. on the
1: context of the application, right? Like each drug application is this very complex specific process to the drug itself. right? So the so the accelerated approval pathway um, allows approvals to move forward where there isn't necessarily a clear answer about whether or not this drug does what the company wants it to do or says it's doing or is seeking to have the drug do. And so what happens in this pathway is that the FDA approves a drug for usually a serious life-threatening illness. This isn't just something that's done for like, you know, eczema or something like this is only for, you know, severe diseases, mostly for those that do not have any other courses of treatment like Alzheimer's. So the FDA approves a drug for a serious life-threatening illness that, you know, may provide may is the keyword here may provide meaningful therapeutic benefit over existing treatment options when the drug is shown to have what's called a surrogate endpoint. Mm. So the surrogate endpoint is kind of up for, um, uh, collective decision as to what that is. Sometimes it's a metric or a measure or a diagnostic test that could show some sort of preliminary clinical benefit or show a gesture towards a clinical benefit for patients. And in this circumstance, that's exactly where this is going. So the FDA has made a decision that um, that. The benefits of this treatment potentially outweigh the risks of the therapy and that despite the fact that, to quote the FDA decision explicitly, quote, the data included in the applicant's submission were highly complex and left residual uncertainties regarding clinical benefit. But regardless, <laughs> under <Rousing> this acceleration, <laughs> <endorsement. laughs> I know, right? <laughs> like really makes you want to flock to the infusion center for this drug. But um, so, yeah, despite the fact that, um, you know, residual uncertainties were very primary, this decision was made, again, pretty much in complete in a complete reversal from what the expert panel actually like recommended that they do the, the the drug was approved and this is very very unconventional for the FDA normally the kind of drugs that go through the accelerated pathway these are things like really complex cancer drugs these are um, stuff like HIV AIDS medication right but in the circumstance with alzheimers we do not have any we don't have any medications that are actual treatment for alzheimers this is a this is a new investigative pathway for treating the disease that's like you know only been something that people have been researching for the past 20 years it's unclear if it actually does anything and so you know the idea behind this kind of approval is to get drugs into bodies and to get patients in these populations where there really is no treatment and it's a terminal disease To give them some sort of hope and access and also to accelerate getting these results back that may one day show efficacy. But the problem actually is that in in practice, it doesn't actually necessarily mean that anyone's going to get more access to the drug.
2: Well, and it seems like also in this specific case, the approach was very blatantly, okay. well, we can't get FDA approval through the traditional pathway because that study was shut down dramatically as you say in 2019 so instead let's approach the uh, accelerated approval process almost as a loophole Mm -hmm. right and say like okay we're gonna we're gonna get this to the point where it can be approved for um notably it can be now uh the the study was on a specific subpopulation of alzheimer's patients this is now notably approved for any any, like at any, any stage of Alzheimer's any, right. at all so if you're diagnosed with it you can you can be pres- prescribed this drug and then the the point being too you know to translate some of this to plain English that like in the case of this uh I- of this drug like the idea of efficacy theoretically would be that Adjuhelm uh, stops or slows the progression of Alzheimer's right would be the efficacy being sought right right, right. in but this instead case instead of that- instead, right instead of that, um, what uh, what B was mentioning in terms of how the accelerated approval works, instead of that you have this uh, again. B used the term "quote unquote" surrogate endpoint, and to translate that, a surrogate endpoint is basically saying, "Okay, so we know that we can't prove." Again, in this case specifically, we know that we can't prove this drug specifically does stop or slow the progression of Alzheimer's. What we can say is if we pick a surrogate, like a different a different target. Right? Amyloid, for example, surrogate in this endpoint, case, yeah. which is a, a protein. Yeah, amyloid. So, like, what we can say is that this doesn't necessarily stop or slow progress. the The idea here is that they've, to some degree, shown that it clears this amyloid protein, which itself is, you know, a subject of some... Debate as to whether clearing this protein would itself stop or slow uh, (laughs) Alzheimer's progression.
0: (laughs) And then in the label, they don't even mention amyloid as a criteria for use. That's that's to me. That's (laughs) the richest uh, part of this.
1: Right. So, So the idea and what Biogen says is that by reducing beta amyloid proteins in the brain, Um, will reduce the plaque buildup from amyloid proteins in the brain. And basically, the abnormal levels of beta amyloid proteins, they clump together and they build plaque, which collects between neurons and disrupts the communication of the brain to itself. Now, it's not the only um, protein that builds plaque. There are a couple other ones that are being studied. One of the I think it's the uh, Roche drug is going after the other protein. There's
2: a mental floss joke in here somewhere. (laughs) But, there,
1: you know, there's there is limited evidence that a reduction in beta amyloid proteins actually leads to um, stopping the progression of the disease. But what the FDA is saying is that they are conditionally, essentially conditionally approving this drug based on the assertion from Biogen that they think that in reducing beta amyloid proteins in the brain, they can reduce the buildup of plaque, mm-hmm. therefore slowing the disease. So the surrogate endpoint, the, the new benchmark that's been decided, is actually looking for a reduction in these proteins, not necessarily looking for improving the disease, right? Because it's sort of this uh, improving the disease is like the secondary hypothesis, right? Right. And so what the FDA... Which they don't
2: have to prove under this certification. Right. Not, not right, quite
1: yeah. yet. So, so the thing about this is actually that these kind of approvals are subject to review, Right. So they happen under the condition that the company must immediately begin engaging in a phase four trial to confirm their results. And if their results are not confirmed, if they're unable to show this sort of broad reduction in the beta amyloid proteins and the FDA is fully within their rights to revoke the approval.
2: The catch being that those results are not due for a decade. Well,
1: right. The other thing is, so
2: phase four, can we like go
0: plain English again? Like phase four is post-market.
1: Phase four is always post-market, right?
0: Right. So uh, now you're going to have a choice between if you're like somebody who might have enrolled in the trial, you're like, oh yeah, you can get this thing and it's definitely the drug, or you can go into a trial where you might get the drug, but you also might get a placebo. Like, what are people going, I mean, like, how difficult is it going to be to get people into that post-market trial? Like, probably pretty hard. Thus, yeah, 10 years sounds like a reasonable amount of time here. Right.
2: But also then, that decade time period as the sort of due date is problematic because in that time you know market projections basically say like okay this is then blockbuster billion dollar drug like literally the uh the projections are that within by
1: 2025 half, it years, should yeah. hit between seven and seven and a half billion dollars in revenue for yeah, biogen
2: exactly there are other like market analysts who have estimated for example within a certain amount of time just like the medicare amount would be like 10.7 billion dollars annually
1: right and after news of this approval broke on on monday Biogen stock went up by 38% in one day alone, which added $16 billion to the valuation of the company, Um, which, you know, is immense for a company that has very few attractive intellectual properties out there in the drug market right now. And, you know, the idea behind the accelerated approval approval pathway is that it's intended to provide earlier access to potentially valuable therapies only for patients with serious diseases, right? And the idea is that it allows this drug to be stocked in stuff like ERs, in pharmacies, doctors can buy it. The problem is, you know, there are other ways to access drugs before they're approved, right? There are compassionate use, there's Um, parallel track access, there's expanded access, and now there's the Right to Try Act, which passed in 2017. And actually, since the Right to Try Act um, passed, you've seen these sort of questionably efficacious approvals really accelerate, particularly in the space of oncology, which is not unusual, right? Because these are experimental drugs, and a lot of these drugs are sort of first generation drugs. But the problem really becomes, will this um, approval pathway really actually give anyone? Access to this drug at all, I think, is a really open question because a lot of the times the drugs that get approved this way, um, it's it's really difficult to get insurance companies to cover them. They've got right. pretty high costs, and what you end up seeing is that very few um, public insurance plans, like very few Medicaid plans, will cover this. Um, if you're someone who primarily receives your care through a clinic or the emergency room, which is you know um, particularly common in the HIV population where this this idea came out of. Um it's very difficult to get access to experimental drugs. You know, so the idea was that this was a way of sort of putting things into the market prematurely to make access a little bit more equitable. In reality though, even with this sort of accelerated approval Payers are pretty reluctant to pay for this kind of care. So what you end up seeing is that this becomes really dictated by socioeconomic ability to pay out of pocket. right? And, and it really becomes um, the kind of drug that maybe you're only going to see rich people showing up to, to pay for because it's going to be prohibitively expensive to anyone that needs to rely on their payer as a pass through to get access.
0: Right. So even if you take the, I guess the, the point of that is that even if you take the sort of very generous view that, okay, maybe this, the, you know, the the trials aren't just picking, they're just picking, not picking up this like latent um, effectiveness that like is just very hard to show and is like, you know, oh, you can't really describe the taste of a peach uh, or can't <laughs> quantify like the taste of a peach. Like even in that very generous sort of interpretation of the evidence here, uh, that is going to lead to a a, a very unequal distribution of this drug, even if it is sort of like effective, but we just don't know.
1: Right. And and I mean, I think some people who have been very positive on this have compared the situation to the 1993 accelerated approval of the first multiple sclerosis drug, which was beta interferon. Um, and have pointed out that, you know, at the time there were no treatments and people weren't sure if it was going to work. And in the 20 years since we've got 20 drugs for for treating MS, but that's kind of like treating like the situation is some sort of like destiny or predetermined outcome, right? That like we'll all drugs are going to be like that. Yeah. Right. Versus like looking at it in the in the real context that it exists in, which is that not noth- nothing is a sure bet at this point. And the only fact of the matter that we know for sure is that this is a very, very expensive drug, about four times more expensive than what most... Um, economic analysis of what would make it cost effective yeah. would come in at it's, $58,000
2: it's a year. Uh, I mean, one of the two, I mentioned the two people uh, resigned from the, from the FDA advisory committee who had reviewed Biogen's um, data on this. One of them speaking to the Washington Post said he resigned from the FDA advisory panel quote, because he did not wish to be part of a sham process. Going on to state, "quote the whole saga of the approval of aducanumab made a mockery of the advisory committee's consultative process." While I realize that the committee is advisory, the approval of aducanumab appears to have been foreordained. Um, I mean, the like the the vote that this committee took was basically like eleven like, to one, right? Eleven
1: yeah. to one, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it
2: was, uh, and the final approval uh, the, well, vote was one, ten
1: to one, yes. Well,
2: and the the one. The, the the one vote that was not no was a maybe. was a unsure yeah right so it's like and this is what kind of makes it especially unprecedented.
1: Yeah, these overrulings are pretty rare. Between the years of 2008 and 2015, only about 21 percent of the time did the F did the FDA even uh, differ in opinion from their advisory committee. But what's really different about the situation is that this is actually the first time in the history of the FDA that the FDA has voted to approve a drug after the advisory c- committee. Um, completely went against it. Right.
0: Usually the advisory committee is like more uh, aggressive in their in their sort of like approval um, and FDA sort of like slows it down. But this is the reverse.
1: Right. And, and usually these overrulings that happen where the FDA will overrule an advisory um, committee's decision, it'll be like, you know, maybe a, a, a six to five vote or something. Very, very, you know, tight and borderline. Never has anything gone forward with this kind of opposition to it from their panel of experts. And I mean, I I think what what a lot of people have argued um, is that this really sets a dangerous precedent because what it says is that, you know, here's this
2: pathway, you can use it
1: it's yeah what kind of evidence does a new Alzheimer's therapy need to get the green light with this as the precedent right can you can you just get another drug based on a similar idea approved with this as the precedent now is this now a a pathway for Alzheimer's drugs to get approved without needing to show clinical benefit and then how does that sort of break out into the the other types of drugs right and and I think that's where you see like comparisons to the you know oh this is just like you know interferon with ms are really disingenuous because it's absolutely not the same scenario at all this is a much broader and um more i think more insidious uh, leverage of biopharmaceutical power over regulators than we've seen previously. Well,
0: and the other thing is i think it does sort of have a way of instrumentalizing and leveraging the fact that you have 6 as mil- a 6 million people with alzheimer's yes, yeah. in the united states and what are yeah. they all going to be eligible for this? Right? Or they're all, you know, uh, it's approved it's approved for all of them whether or not in- insurance companies, you know, ultimately uh, cover it is a completely different question. Um, which, you know, gets us into this, the way that this has been sort of like framed in the media is like very quickly people have gone to like the uh taxpayer dollars uh framing uh and it's things gonna like be that an I mean, extra
2: 10 billion on medicare etc right, right, right. or also that in people's quote, like that quote, unquote, people's insurance premiums will undoubtedly raise because or the this medicare will be premiums to will
1: raise across the yeah, board yeah, and exactly. yeah and i think you know one of the most key points here is actually to look at what providers who work in aging and alzheimer's and memory and neurology are actually saying about what could happen with this approval going forward and i I think. You know, and this is something that's been raised um, over and over again with drugs that have been brought through this accelerated approval pathway. Even though it is the standard for AIDS drug development, a lot of people in the AIDS treatment space have been very highly critical over this practice over the years and the drugs that it's brought to market. You know, the the idea that I think a lot of clinicians have and their resistance to this is not only that you know patients could be financially exploited, which is obviously like something that no one ever wants, but it's also that we could lose the opportunity to gather meaningful data here that we we could potentially go off on a research track you know that's two three decades long that's the wrong direction right, right? and and I think the big risk here is not just you know what innovation could be stifled from stopping this one drug from going to market but what in, what innovation is going to be stifled from allowing it to go to market right because like the idea that that regulation stifles innovation is just a lie that pharma tells us in order to protect their profits right, but there but is a reality
2: you have like biogen gets this blockbuster drug approved you know there it's not even like things have to wait to be uh developed like as you mentioned uh much much earlier uh lily and a couple of uh, and like and at rush, least, at least, yeah. Yeah, lily and rush both have similar drugs more that then they can drugs. put into that then they can, you know, put into along the same framework and push in that direction as opposed to having to, you know, start from scratch and try a different drug to get approved. Right. Well, I, I, no, the,
1: the Lily and Roche drugs are actually very promising and they're they're actually different than this drug. And the problem I think that people worry is that, you know, those drugs are two to three years behind where the Biogen drug is. So if we're bringing the Biogen drug to market and we're opening it up to all six million Alzheimer's patients in the United States, will there be patients left to fill the study? for the other two drugs that are actually more promising when the option is you can do this trial for a more promising drug but you run the risk of getting the placebo or you can use this sort of extra market conditional approval access to get access to a drug that may or may not work, but you know you're getting the drug. Right. right? And so, you know, there are limited resources in terms of how many patients are available to r- enroll in studies because there are only so many cases of each disease. Right. right. And so right. it's not just about like what information do we limit and what what research questions do we limit in deciding that this works and moving forward with that assumption from from a like a regulatory standpoint, it's also like you know how many patients are going to be left. How how will you be able to convince a patient to participate in a study that's you know for a drug that's maybe three four years out from market if this is available? This is the first Alzheimer's drug that will have been approved since two thousand and three. It'll be the first treatment approved that's directed at the underlying pathophysiology of Alzheimer's. So if you're presenting this as the first drug to actually do something against this disease. It's important, one, that it does something, but two, that it doesn't detract from the other existing research, which, again, is more promising than this drug. And that's a huge risk going forward. That the the knowledge loss that we faced by that we face by making these moves essentially to prioritize Biogen's profits over you know actual innovation in biopharmaceuticals is is incredible, and that's lost from so much reporting.
0: Right, and I, yeah, I, I think the thing that in looking at this is like. There are many different things that one might be doing with an approval process. You could talk about it in terms of like overall innovation, safety, effectiveness, and so on. There are many different interests that like are are at play, but if you tried to design a machine that had one function, which was to increase Biogen's stock price, that machine would look basically exactly like the approval process that happened here. Right, You couldn't design a better machine to make that happen.
1: And a lot of providers that I've spoken to rightly feel that this is an unethical trade-off that's been made. That the decision by the FDA, who again explicitly said that they felt that the potential upside outweighed the risks in this scenario, right? Mm. A lot of people who actually work with these patients very fundamentally disagree with how that calculus is made. And they feel that actually the stakes are exactly the opposite and that we run an incredible risk of actually slowing down progress on a devastating disease that we have very little options to treat, you know? And, and yeah, like as a patient, like I understand like drugs at arms, let me try it. Right. But at the same time, like, yeah, if I if I had Alzheimer's, well, let me try
2: as like, different from it's approved.
1: I would feel very I would feel very conflicted about what's just happened. Yeah, because you're right, Ernie. It's like like to a lot of people, they're gonna just hear it's approved and they're gonna turn to their providers and they're gonna push for it, and the providers are gonna feel pressure because like yeah, of course you want to try it, but is that gonna take a patient out of a trial that would have produced. A treatment or even a cure for Alzheimer's. We have no idea. There's no way to know. And a lot of what this decision is, is actually also foreclosing on potential future research possibilities for actually treating this disease in exchange for this immediate potential no reward option that that is available. But there's no real um, concrete evidence that we're going to get anything meaningful out of it. And and I think, you know, what a lot of um The fact that a lot of the sort of discussion around this comes back to this whole issue of like drug pricing and drug costs and Medicare and the taxpayers, you know, all of that just obscures the fact that there is a fundamental research priority that is being thrown in the gutter and spit on in this scenario as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, so like this is this I I think... You know, and there's some people who are suggesting like, OK, this is actually like this is the fulcrum for like drug price reform. And it's not clear at all to me that that's true, because there's there are any number of other ways um, of dealing with this. And I, I think that like it's, it could also be for conservatives like a fulcrum to find a way of like further somehow like further privatizing or further cost shifting uh, or finding
2: other arrangements. Well, for yeah, Medicare. They, are, they already are. They already have the playbook. Uh, which is the bullshit lie that the the trust fund uh, Medicare trust fund is running out yeah exactly
1: well and the other line that I've seen that I absolutely fucking hate is that people have been warning well you know there's no cap on out of pocket costs with Medicare part B and because there's this sort of assumption that not only is the drug 56 to 58 thousand dollars a year um, that also there is this sort of 30 to 20 thousand dollars of imaging requirements and other testing requirements
0: um,
1: that come in in concert as the the sort of uh, diagnostic maintenance for starting this therapy. And what I've seen a lot of people say is, well, see, this is what really makes Medicare Advantage attractive because Medicare Advantage plans often have a cap on out-of-pocket costs for Part B, you know, for their medical care. But traditional Medicare has no cap of -of out-of-pocket costs. And once you get past the donut hole, everybody's going to be hit for 5% of their care and seniors will not be able to afford it, which, you know, is, um, yeah, maybe that's a selling point for Medicare Advantage if you know nothing about Medicare Advantage and the way that it likes to deny patients that are actually sick access to care. But, you know, I could totally see this as, well, if this is the way that drug approvals are going, then we need, you know, a more flexible, privatized Medicare in order to accommodate um, these kinds of patients.
0: At the very least... At the very least, even regardless of like what happens in the political arena, this becomes a boon for Medicare Advantage plans who say, look, hey, you know, you want to get on this, uh, you know, you want to be able to access this drug like here. We have these, you know, plans that, you know, we uh, we have uh, a cap. Right. So it's I I think that this I would not be so uh, sanguine about the possibility that like this becomes the fulcrum for uh, like pricing reform. And I think, uh, you know, another reason why is that, you know, even with the sort of cost projections on, you know, what this is going to look like, you know, you don't necessarily see, uh, I think a lot of movement, uh, within the democratic party, especially from this sort of centrist wing that is running in, uh, swing districts where they're, where the pharmaceutical industry in alignment with, uh, sort of, Coke network, people are like uh, running millions and millions of dollars in attack ads already uh, for the next congressional cycle, you know, kind of trying to get them to like cool their heels on the bill that they voted for uh, last term uh, to uh, do do something on uh, drug price reform.
1: Yeah, Phil, I think you make a great point because one of the things that's been discussed over and over is the fact that, you know, this this new biogen drug would become the top gro- like the top Medicare drug in 5 years if it yeah. were if it's going to go to market as is planned. And you know, there's there's a lot of discussion over how do we deal with these sort of blockbuster drugs that are incredibly lucrative and meaningful to the drug industry to try and protect, but and patients really need them, but at the end of the day, they're incredibly unaffordable And much that's been done in the space of biosimilar or generic legislation has done very little to actually bring drug prices down. And I think what we've seen over the years is that the idea that you can kind of incentivize uh, drug companies to bring their prices down through flooding the market with generics is actually not playing out in real time. But yet, I think a lot of our proposals for trying to address these these drug pricing issues are still couched in the idea that there is a way to... um, to sort of reprimand pharma into <laughs> um, voluntarily becoming a more ethical industry, which is just not going to work in practice. Which All is, signs I think,
2: point to know. Yeah. yeah,
1: which is why for a long time we've, you know, we've been very highly critical of a lot of these bills that that sort of propose that the way to lower healthcare costs or more affordable healthcare is through forcing lower drug prices through this sort of symbolic negotiation that's going to occur within Medicare, which I think brings us to this um, revival of HR3 that we've seen, which is the, the, the drug pricing bill that initially passed the House two years ago that had drug companies calling it, you know, a potential nuclear winter for the industry as a whole, when in reality, that proposal was saying, what if we take 25 drugs and we let Medicare negotiate the price on it?
2: Up to 250, actually. But, yeah. I thought
1: it was like twenty five the first year, thirty the second year, and that the it got to two hundred and fifty after like six years or something. But
2: right, so this is like
0: this is very, uh, you know, once this hit the Senate, obviously in twenty nineteen, it was dead. The pharmaceutical industry has used it as their the sort of the the plinth for. Like beating up on Democrats in like swing districts and basically saying, you know, this is well, they sort of farmed out the work, I guess, to to some of the uh, the Koch people, American Action Network, I think um, to say like because they can say like, oh, this is like socialism or or whatever. Um, but uh, now it's, it's coming up again and still you have these, you know, 10 sort of conservative Democrats or something like that uh, pushing back on it. And I think the hope now and this to me feels like very it feels like very familiar democratic policy terrain, which is like, you know, you have this thing that's like drug pricing reform, which if passed wouldn't have the same sort of like immediate tangible benefits as like giving people some new uh, benefit uh, or like expanding like coverage of something. Um, The benefits are like going to be a little bit more diffuse. They might take a little bit longer to manifest. So it's not like huge. It's not great, like popular politics. Right. It's something that like, you know, you're going to have like very clear opponents on the beneficiaries of it are like kind of diffuse. Um, So like it's not. It's not like, uh, you know, it's not easy politics either by any means, but it goes hand in hand, I think, with another sort of democratic priority, which is like, well, if you can get it through reconciliation and you can get CBO and JCT to say this is deficit reducing or like this will like save the government money, (laughs) you can then include it in a piece of legislation that spends money so that you can like essentially like even out what the so-called price tag is at the end of the day. So it's like, it's like the worst sort of like 12 dimensional chess, like politics. And at the end of the day, it's not even clear that that will work, uh, you know, because you're going to have a different bill in the Senate. Like it doesn't matter how moderate, whatever Pelosi puts out, you will still get uh, Two uh, members of the Senate uh, are like, "Oh, there's actually a bipartisan bill that could be, you know, uh, better." Which will it's like even more meaningless uh, what it's doing. So it's um, it's it's like not exactly clear to me like what any of this does or like what function any of right. this has, except for like another form of like political theater. Uh, well around the issue of drug prices
2: well and also I think yeah I mean it's worth getting into what this is you know putatively trying to accomplish and why it's such a like nothing I feel like this is kind of the of all the sort of signaling that the Democratic Party does on wanting to do things on in in healthcare at all the sort of efforts on quote-unquote drug pricing reform are the biggest sort of like ghost nothing so for for example one thing that this would do is uh the the idea is that for both medicare and then theoretically for although the senate wants to remove this theoretically for like the general market that the united states uh through hhs would engage in uh what they're calling price negotiations with drug companies um over i think like a maximum of 250 drugs a year and that These negotiations, so like such as they are, would it sounds like even barely, I think calling them even negotiations would be a stretch because it's basically saying like we will attempt to peg the price of these to an index of what these drugs are charged for in like a grouping of other countries. So They'll like make an index of uh, pricing that is charged by pharmaceutical companies in these other countries for these specific drugs, and then that will be sort of the that will become the U.S.'s price ceiling for those drugs as well, which ignores completely the fact that the United States is itself like the biggest market market. Right. It's like we th- pay it the is most pharmaceutical companies. Number one market They we pay. Right. Exactly. Like it's saying. amazing. We do the we gatekeeping.
1: The we do the gatekeeping of what's allowed to be sold. And then we pay out the ass compared right. to everybody else.
2: Well, and then, yeah, again, even if you even for the. People who do think that this would somehow be some sort of uh, big deal, what kind of negotiating position are you creating for yourself if you were the premier drug market and you are leaving your entire leveraging position? On the table. Right. I mean, so like that, that is functionally what is happening in the bill
1: and these proposals like what I don't think a lot of people understand is that these proposals are talking about just dealing with drugs that are paid for often in Part D. So this is like oral medication. So it wouldn't even touch the top five drugs that we spend the most money on across the board, because none of those are simple oral compound medications that you would pick up at a pharmacy. These are the kind of things that you get at an infusion center, at the hospital, in a doctor's office, et cetera. So, this so they're would, not
2: touching that. They're it's not just, touching yeah. any
1: of that. They're touching stuff that is very simple. They're touching stuff like you know uh, blood pressure medicine, heart medicine, the kind of things that you pick up at Walgreens, not the kind of things that cost 50, 60, 70, $300,000 a year or per dose, not the expensive cancer medicines that are not a hep lot of people, th- right? Not the hep C medications. No, we're talking about very strictly medications that are accessible at a retail pharmacy right. or through your mail order pharmacy.
2: Right. So it's already basically targeted in such a way where you're basically those are also the drugs where it probably like even least uh impacts pharmaceutical companies bottom line, really. I mean right. And yet pharmaceutical
1: companies are crying wolf like this is some sort of like huge mortal blow to their ability to survive and make profits.
0: This is why I like to refer to this particular kind of legislation as uh political theater. And I, and I don't mean that in the, in the of like flippant way that people say, Oh, it's just political theater. Like, I mean, explicitly, like there is a dramaturgy involved. Right. And that, that is in fact the function that these pieces of legislation play. And I mean, if you look at the salience of the issue of like drug prices over time in Congress, the number of bills introduced, the number of hearings held, the number of like Memorial resolutions introduced, like it fluctuates, it ebbs and flows in this way that is sort of disconnected from actual sort of increase in in prices, uh, and it's it's also you know you have to consider that like the major constituency that would be pushing for this or like that experiences the most adverse effects of this, like there are all of these other absorptive mechanisms, one of which is death. Right. One of one of like one way that you bleed off a constituency for like actual reform is that the, many of the people who need it die and they die early and they die younger and the rest of them are pretty disorganized uh, politically and de- and demobilized politically and disenfranchised. Just politically, exhausted. Right. right. Yes. So you don't. So so like in the absence of that concrete coalition, then you're relying on essentially like political elites uh, by which I mean like members of the Democratic Party, some think tanks, like some like reformers, like they're doing the work. They're driving it. And at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter whether or not they do it at the end of the day. It doesn't matter whether or not it goes into effect. What matters is they've taken the stand. They've taken the position. They show that they're working on it. They're like maybe one year it'll be better because of the, the sort of the nice middle class. Uh, voters who are, you know, like want to be sure that, yeah, the Democrats are doing something and like, yes, it's sort of like getting better. But the thing is like that, that judgment that they're making is completely distended from the actual experience that people have in paying for uh, prescription drugs. So right. the only kind of thing that this piece of legislation can be is a way of narrating what the Democratic Party is about. Then it becomes a way of narrating for drug companies what they're about, um, and and like what the the stakes are for innovation and what socialism is or whatever. <laughs> um, and and it, it that that is really the function that it serves. It it, it serves this uh, uh, purpose of creating a, a narrative that is completely disconnected. From right. any experience people have. And the, the reason that they're able to do that is all of the ways in which the the system that uh, c- creates these prices and 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 sort of uh, forces costs onto individuals has of absorbing actual pressure.
1: Right. And I think one interesting thing that I've spoken to a lot of type one diabetes insulin for all advocates about is that actually their concern is that there is this kind of growing constituency between the insulin for all campaigns and other people who are fighting for Medicare for all and for, you know, single payer health care and different approaches to financing drugs that get people the fucking drugs that they're prescribed right and what their worry is is that this is a specific attempt to try and fracture what is a building coalition that has a lot of potential power and influence here because one of the biggest stories that you've heard in the sort of debate over drug costs in the united states is the cost of insulin at the pharmacy which prevents a lot of people from being able to take their medication leads to rationing leads to all sorts of preventable absolutely ridiculously negligent deaths that are on the hands of drug companies that they have no accountability for, that no one holds them responsible for. And so what what I've actually spoken to, particularly a lot of the folks that are working on the New York Health Act campaign who are also involved in in Insulin for All work is that they are worried that this is a deliberate attempt to try and fracture what is a growing and every every year more powerful coalition specifically yeah, you, you
2: dial down the cruelty on a couple of right if you take away yeah. the
1: sort of most visible example in the media which is people young people who are rationing their insulin who who go into a coma and die because they can't afford their monthly prescription costs if you take that away you know how much work does it take to build it up and that's not to say that like this wouldn't help people right that's not right. what we're saying obviously but people
2: should not be obviously in like if yeah. we can
1: get insulin affordable like do it tomorrow W- however possible but there is a very real reality that when we talk about how solutions are framed and what the sort of generosity or you know narrow frame of that solution is going to be it's important to consider Is there an attempt to break a constituency here that represents an actual challenge to power and an actual challenge to pharmaceutical companies, right? If you take away the worst, most obvious example, what does that do to the sort of landscape of pushback, right? Not just from the We already have an example
0: of that, right? (laughs) Like we have (laughs) Medicare Part D. That's like the best test case for this. We know exactly what it did.
1: Right. And I think for a lot of, uh, you know, insulin for all activists who remember the Part D fight, because this was a big insulin was a big part of that as well. You know, it's like they're feeling like they're seeing deja vu and that this is going to be, you know, another another situation where it's going to require so much work to build up public awareness if something like this moves forward. But I think the fact is that, you know, as we're seeing it within the, you know, the landscape of how, quote unquote, conservative Democrats are reacting to it, I don't think it's incredibly likely that anything is going to happen with this at all. So to them, what what worries a lot of these insulin for all activists is like, OK, well, here's the perception very publicly that people are working on the insulin issue. But the insulin issue is still a big fucking issue and people are still dying every day that do not need to die right? These are unnecessary deaths. These are deaths of like greed and capitalism. They are not necessary. We can help people with diabetes if we just give them their meds. And so, I, I, you know, I think from the, the activism community, they worry about like just in, in, in real time, their visibility that they've worked so hard on that so many people have died for is going to be squandered into this gigantic, you know, democratic, performative drug pricing bullshit. That's not going to actually help anyone because it's never going to fucking pass because there's still people in the Senate who are like, well, we can't hurt our economy of uh, or <laughs> our, our ecology of innovation. Yeah. You know, we can't challenge that. Literally
2: the term that they elected to use, the... Damage invaluable the of innovation, innovation
1: of eco Innovation ecosystem. Innovation ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: So as we've been saying, I mean, as we even said from the top, I think we we almost never talk about the long pursuit for Democrats in terms of like dr- the drug pricing arena, mostly because there are as, as I mean, in a similar point to what we made with the public option thing, there are way better ways to do this and deal with this issue, which is, you know, Medicare for all single payer system, also something that we advocate, like fucking seizing pharma, for example, mm-hmm. would be a good start. Or even just, you know, making a like a national health service uh, on, on top of all of this, like all of these different things that we advocate for in terms of health justice would obviously result in whatever the end goal is putatively part of this legislation, which some of the which again, the details of it, some of many of which are just sort of laughable to they're like, at, at the very least laughable to peg to these lofty ambitions of like, oh, we're gonna, you know, re- like, quote, unquote, reduce the the burden on on people or something like that. And that's, you know, and that's for the people who are saying. Who are actually saying we're going to reduce the burden on on patients or people who have to like pay for these drugs, as opposed to the people who are saying like we're just by doing this we're going to reduce national health expenditures, right? That we're going yeah, to yeah. Like that's a, such
0: a weird way of talking about it, like as if any of us experience that at that aggregate right. level. Except like yeah. there's no like social planner at that level. It's like oh, this is like every morning I wake up and the NHG just increases. Like no,
2: right. I mean the the really depressing thing about this is I think that the part of the reason that this debate happens in the first place I think is because like the failure in the first place to do something like an American uh, National Health Service or an American single payer system I think created the conditions where and not just the failure but the like the resistance to even looking like you wanted to do that because you don't want to look like you're trying to do socialism or whatever um, in it like during the during and after the Red Scare right like I feel like that creates the conditions where it's just been this perpetual hobby horse of Democratic Party politics that are like, we are going to finally square the circle on drug costs for people. I mean, this was we talked last week about the um, 1962 Kefauver hearings. Right. Like we talked about that last week when we talked to Alex Saichik about uh, "quote unquote, the drug story um, and about, uh, you know, the kind of wide range of things that the pharmaceutical industry did uh, over the course of the 20th century as sort of like it's, you know, finding its propaganda legs, basically. And I mean, one of the interesting things about those hearings, the Kefauver hearings, is that, you know, they were about drug pricing. But the uh, the end product of those hearings, which was so like prominently they were doing things like displaying, like, look at how pharmaceutical companies make. And this is, again, in the early 60s um, and it's gotten even worse now. But like saying, demonstrating pharmaceutical companies make profoundly higher profits than other sectors of the economy. They showed that, you know, certain drugs were like a 7000 percent price increase from the amount of materials paid or the like the amount of the, the cost of production was. And this got roundly attacked by a bunch of basically by a concerted force of a bunch of uh, industry groups, some of which like uh, in a letter from the AMA said explicitly, like that this was about that, that the AMA choosing as an industry group to back the pharmaceutical industry and resisting the proposed legislation from the Kefauver Kefauver hearings, that the idea was because they said, uh, quote, They cannot help feeling probably correctly that any increase in the federal role in medicine weakens the resistance to a national health service, right? (laughs) That's, I mean, that's literally from a, that's literally from an AMA op-ed from the sixties, um, from around the time of the Kefauver hearings. And what's interesting is, so like with all this industry opposition, basically that died, like the, 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 the hearings led to like basically forestalling the legislation on drug pricing, but then the thalidomide crisis happened
3: right Mm, yeah and so
2: the provisions that were in the bill so because so kefauver's (laughs) bill in the early 60s they wanted to eliminate uh, drug brand names Mm -hmm. eliminate brand names they wanted to also reduce uh patent patent protections to three years like profoundly decreasing the incentive that you imagine
1: what would happen companies
2: would have to like do stuff like aduhelm Right. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, Adderhelm, if they only had the protections for three years, that's, you know, maybe a little drip in the bucket in terms of profit, but it's not necessarily going to like, you know, uh, it's not worth bending the fucking rules around necessarily. Right. right? But so um, that was originally proposed in the uh, early 60s Kefauver bill. Um, It was uh, it was basically stripped out or more accurately, I think the provisions that were about drug safety, actually. Um, mm. were stripped out and were then kind of pinned into newly just like fully rewritten legislation, which was then passed as though it was the same thing that was initially proposed following on from the hearings, mm-hmm. basically. But then just, yeah, in the in the wake of the sort of public outcry about uh, the concerns about thalidomide was was passed. And this is actually the underpinnings of the FDA's current approval process, which just over time, through things like you know what would be saying with with the uh introduction of accelerated approval pathway in the 90s and il- the introduction of a bunch of all- other stuff has just slowly been whittled away from actually so it's interesting that i mean it's not even it's not even ironic it's just it's it's interesting cuz these things actually are the this approval process and the drug pricing question are in a way in their current formulation at least in the way the, the American state deals with this are intimately linked. Right. Right. From this event. It's just that, uh, you know, we have so wholeheartedly resisted socialization of any kind, uh, of things related to like health medicine or whatever, what have mm-hmm. you, um, that any of the, you know, potentially positive effects of, uh, of this kind of like originating, uh, major policy change, right. We're just like completely written out.
1: But you know, what's more, important is obviously to preserve our invaluable innovation. Um, ecology. Ecosystem. <laughs> okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm
0: like, I'm actually going to go. Uh, yeah. Have some, have some fun out in the ecology today. It's going to be, I'm just <laughs> going to go out in the ecosystem and enjoy myself.
2: Just go. Yeah. Live amongst the uh, innovation. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. Self-actualize. Become the Fern Gully. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. I think that might be a good place to leave it for today. As always, you can find us on patreon.com slash pod if you'd like to get access to our weekly second episode and support the show. Um, you get access to all of the Monday episodes and all of our back catalog of bonus episodes. And um, if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about it online, you know, tell your enemies, whatever. It all helps. And um, we'll catch you later in the week in the patron feed. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week.
2: And now, the death panel presents the wild shit that healthcare policy wonks get away with saying. Court. The other thing is I've seen um, polling in the past too where like, people are concerned about the high prices of drugs, but then when you ask them like, if they personally are having affordability issues, they don't. And it often is like an, actually a very small, narrow proportion of patients that are really bearing the incredible brunt of those high prices. Because again, the U.S. does have really great generic penetration. It's like, it's people with a fraction of diseases and conditions and a, on a fraction of therapies that are most impacted by this.
1: I, I met a doctor who I didn't think was all that politically engaged or necessarily very liberal, but when he found out as was a health journalist, he just went on this like tirade about his Crohn's patients who were never going to be, you know, it's a disease that young people get. And he's screaming, they're never going to be able to buy a house. <laughs> Like, it was my fault. And, and, um, you know, I think for those people, this is really urgent.